education tends to be a pretty weak predictor of behavior. You look at something like nutrition. In 1993, the US started labeling all the food, sodium, calories, fat, whatever. And since 1993, the US has become three times as morbidly obese because when I'm tired and I choose to eat a Cinnabon instead of a salad, it's not because I have any misgivings about which one is healthier. It's because I don't care. The emotional impulse sort of overrides the educational value. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC. I am Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. Daniel Crosby, Chief Behavioral Officer at Brinker Capital. Dr. Crosby is a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert who helps organizations understand the intersection of mind and markets. Dr. Crosby's most recent work, The Behavioral Investor, is a comprehensive look at the neurology, physiology, and psychology of sound financial decision-making. He also constructed the Irrationality Index, a sentiment that measures and gauges greed and fear in the marketplace from month to month. Daniel was named one of the 12 thinkers to watch by Monster.com and a financial blogger you should be reading by AARP. When he's not consulting around market psychology, Daniel enjoys independent films, fanatically following the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team, and spending time with his wife and two children. Well, I am very excited to have with me Dr. Daniel Crosby. Thank you for coming on the show today, Dr. Crosby. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So listen, you have a very interesting role, a role that is extremely interesting to me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as a chief behavioral officer at a financial firm at Brinker Capital. So what is a chief behavioral officer? <laughs> so someone introduced me recently and said, there have been fewer chief behavioral officers at financial institutions than there have been people to walk on the moon. So there you go. <laughs> That's either how cool it is or how strange it is. So I'm in charge of training tools and technology at Brinker Capital, specifically around the intersection of mind and markets. So we understand that more and more we grasp that being a successful investor is less about having the right product mix and more about the right temperament and the right frame of mind and keeping your cool. So I'm in charge of educating advisors and their clients about how to stay the course, how to be patient, how to avoid emotional extremes like fear and greed en route to achieving successful investor outcomes. Wow. So, I mean, that seems like a role that should not be as rare as the number of people that walked on the moon. So why is that? 
Well, I think you're going to see more and more of it. I mean, I don't think it'll be rare for long. I think you'll see more and more financial institutions start to adopt roles like this as the primacy of behavior becomes more and more evident. But I think it's one of those things where people are always looking for a silver bullet, right? Like for a long time there, I mean, I trained to be a clinical psychologist. So my PhD is actually in clinical psychology. And so when I was in therapeutic practice, people would come in and they would always want to know, what's the one thing I have to do? Or what are the words you can say to me or whatever that will make this happen? There never are any magic words. And the same is true, I think, of investors. I think for a long time, people have tried, what's the one stock I can buy? Or what's the one magic beans that will get me across the finish line? There are none, right? In some ways, it's not a sexy idea to say that being patient and keeping your cool is the road to success. But I think you're going to see more and more people with that title in the years to come. Well, I think it's very important. I think they go together just like peanut butter and jelly finance and psychology are very important. You mentioned you started out in clinical psychology, and that's where you achieved your PhD. What brought you to bring the psychology and the finance together? What led down that path? A confluence of things. My dad is a financial advisor. I grew up in a home where we would talk about stock picking around the dinner table. And in my home, I joke, but it's not a joke. I grew up in a conservative religious household and we weren't allowed to swear, which is perhaps typical of most people's growing up. But my dad wouldn't let us say the word debt. He (laughs) thought debt was just another four-letter word. That was kind of his famous remark. So I grew up sort of steeped in conversations around money and investing. And so what happened to me was a couple years into my journey of being a clinical psychologist, I just frankly burned out. It was so heavy for me. It was so heavy for me. And I know you've done a lot of great work and advocacy around suicide prevention and suicide awareness. Having clients who were suicidal, having clients who were just experiencing the tough things that are part of life and feeling like I had the weight of their worries on my shoulder times 40 clients a week was just tough for me. I mean, I took my work home in a way that made it hard for me to be effective. And so I began to look for non-clinical applications of psychology, right? I love thinking deeply about why people behave the way that they do. What's a way that I can still think deeply about this, but not worry quite so much about my clientele? So that early experience and, and I think that burnout are what led me to where I ended up. Yeah, people don't realize that the psychologist many times needs a psychologist to help them through what they deal with on a day to day basis. It's interesting. I just got off the phone with a friend of mine who's a therapist and was sort of empathizing. It's the hardest work in the world. If you do it well, it's such an important job. I'm glad there are people out there who are tougher than me doing a good job for their clients. But it's the hardest work in the world. If you do it well and you really sit with and empathize with those clients and you do it 40 hours a week, it's extremely taxing. It's a burden. You definitely do need your own therapist. Yeah. This is the Midland money mindset. And what I want to know is, How does an an investor, rather, an investor's mindset affect the financial decisions that they make? I mean, I would think it has a huge impact. Yeah, it has a huge impact. So when researching my last book, The Behavioral Investor, I looked at the fMRI research, so basically brain scan research, 
and how activated our brains become when we think about different things. So they measure sort of the electrical stimulation in your brain when you think about politics or religion or sex or money or death. You know, it's these sort of fraught conversations. And money, money elicited more static than any of those other things. And so we are more wound up about money than God, politics, anything else, death. And so it's easy for us to get out of the sweet spot, that sweet decision-making spot, because the youngest parts of our brain are also the most advanced parts of our brain. But when we get sort of emotionally excited, we're not thinking with that most developed, most psychologically advanced part of our brain. We're thinking with sort of the animalistic, primitive parts of our brain. I think the answer is that mindset has everything to do with it and that your mindset is easily moved from the sweet spot. You're quickly moved from homeostasis and into a place where you're making decisions at an emotional extreme, either an extreme of fear or greed, and those are seldom good decisions. So is there anything to the fact that you hear a lot that a lot of people's decisions regarding money and finance tend to root back into what they learned in their childhood. But to some degree, I think what you're saying is at certain points, that kind of gets thrown out the window and we go into that fight or flight mode. So is there really this heavy emphasis on what we're teaching our youngsters with regard to money? Is that really helpful starting them at the early age or does it always revert to this fight or flight scenario? I'll give a what I hope is a nuanced answer. So there's no doubt that your early money scripts and your early money lessons play a big role. And I think the same way that a fish doesn't know that it's wet, like I don't think that many of us even understand that we have money scripts until we perhaps get married. And then our money values and our money narrative comes into sharp relief with that of someone else. And you go, oh, like this isn't good or bad necessarily, but my spouse and I had different money lessons growing up. So there's no doubt that education and experience plays a role. But what's interesting is when we look at the impact of education on behavior, it tends to be a little bit limited. And this is something that I think people tend to be kind of uncomfortable with. We want the answer to be like, oh, like let's put financial education in schools. And then if we teach kids to balance a checkbook, then like it's all going to be cool. That'll be all right. Yeah, that's not the case because education tends to be a pretty weak predictor of behavior. You look at something like nutrition, right? I think there are a lot of parallels between eating healthily and maintaining a good budget. And in 1993, the US started labeling all the food, right? Labeling sodium, calories, fat, whatever on all the food. And since 1993, the US has become twice as fat <laughs> and three times as morbidly obese because like when I'm tired and I choose to eat a Cinnabon instead of a salad, it's not because I have any misgivings about which one is healthier. It's because I don't care. Right. And so the, the emotional impulse sort of overrides the educational value. So I do think education is important as sort of a baseline. But then from there, we need legislation. We need handholding from an advisor or another coach, someone to hold your hand in real time. And we need just-in-time education, right? We need to people to be educated in the moment where they're making a decision. Because, I mean, I took four years of French and I can't 
speak a lick, right? Like you don't remember what you learned in high school in a moment of high emotion. Yeah, you always need that reinforcement. It always comes in handy for sure. Now, we've seen a very interesting year this year from a number of fronts, from a health front, from a psychology front, from a financial front. What effect has the pandemic had on investors and their financial decisions in your view? It's a bit of a mixed bag because in some ways, the pandemic has had the potential to lead people to some really poor decisions. We know that you lose 13% of your IQ when you're under duress. So like when you're stressed out, your cognitive processing power drops by an average of 13%. So those good lessons you got from listening to your podcast, right? The good lessons you learned about money tend to be out the door at the very minute you need them. And so if you think about the COVID crisis, this is not just a financial crisis. This is a job losses are staggering. The health worries are incredible. This is sort of a holistic worry. There's some subset of people who are probably making horrible financial decisions. There's also a subset of people who just are in a terrible place, right? I mean, there's people where the reality is so bleak right now that there's no good decision to be made. From what we've seen, there's also a lot of people who have stayed the course. And I think the proximity of this crisis to the great financial crisis and the accompanying comeback, I think a lot of people that lived through the great financial crisis and maybe panicked and sat out the attendant comeback have learned their lesson. So I think if there's any sort of weird saving grace, it's that we've had a number of crises in relatively quick succession and that people have learned that staying the course and chilling out is the best option. That brings up a good point. This has been an extraordinary example of market volatility. And we talk about a lot of times people say, stay the course through market volatility, stay the course. And I don't think people generally understand what that means, especially those that may not have a plan in place. So what does a stay in the course mean? Does it mean I just keep everything as is? Does it mean I reevaluate? Does it mean my asset allocation? Does it mean my plan is off track? How during times of market volatility should investors approach those times as opposed to getting nervous? What are a couple of steps that they should be considering like as a checklist when volatility hits? Yeah. So I think this is where we have to differentiate between sort of the optimal thing to do in a vacuum and the optimal thing to do behaviorally, right? Because the optimal thing to do in a vacuum tends to be nothing. When we look at the trading data on 19 different countries, across every developed country that's ever been studied, the more you mess with your portfolio, the worse you tend to do. And the people that mess with their portfolio the most tend to underperform the people who mess with their portfolio the least by about 4% a year, which is huge. When you think that a balanced portfolio is going to give you whatever, 7 or 8% over long periods of time, you're giving up half of that to sort of overactivity and nervousness. So that's sort of in a vacuum, the right thing to do tends to be nothing. However, I think that we as an industry do a disservice to our clients when we say, stay the course, stay the course, because that's really easy to say, but it can feel a little bit flippant or dismissive to someone who has spent their life accumulating wealth and has watched 30% of it go down the toilet in whatever it was, six weeks. 
very, very tough. So what I tend to want to do is counsel advisors and clients to have what are effectively cheat days, right? I mean, the same way that someone dieting might say, you know what, like I'm going to eat clean most of the time, but on Saturday, like game on or whatever, right? (laughs) A cheat day, the technical term for it is a replacement behavior. So instead of liquidating my account, instead of going all to cash, maybe we make a small adjustment towards safer assets. Maybe we put in some crash bids, right? Maybe we look for some equities we wanted to hold that were a little too expensive for us historically, but we think are a long-term good play. Maybe we do something like assign our clients a book to read or an article to read. I think we just need to give them something to do because humanity has a profound bias towards action when the game is on the line. And so us telling them to sit on their hands and do nothing is very, very hard, even though it's good advice. So even if it's just rebalancing or tax loss harvesting, doing something can help, I think. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is there's some kind of expectation that something should be done, whether it's small or it may be in the advisor's eyes, not even a big change, but just showing them that you're being proactive in some way and giving some idea of what to do next and that you have that game plan. And it's not just, hey, like you said, sit on your hands and do nothing. Yeah. Is there any empirical evidence that you've seen that having an advisor versus those not having an advisor significantly benefit, whether it's in times of volatility or not? Is there really an enhanced value there? Yeah. So there's quite a bit of empirical evidence that people who work with a financial advisor tend to dramatically outperform those who don't. The caveat there is, though, it's not for the reasons that most people think. So there was a study a few years back that looked at this and they said, advisors, what's the number one value that you add? And 83% of advisors said the number one value that I add is basically behavioral coaching, like keeping my clients from making an ill-informed emotional decision, right? Like decisional coaching. And then they asked the clients and only 6% of the clients said behavioral coaching. So the way that most clients perceive it is back to this sort of silver bullet thing. They go, well, my advisor is the Warren Buffett of my hometown and he or she is going to put me in high-flying stocks and these high-flying assets are going to get me to where I want to go. Well, the reality is people who work with an advisor tend to do 2 to 3% better per year, which over an investment lifetime would theoretically double, double your returns relative to a no advice condition. And we know evidence from Canada shows that people who have a long-term relationship with an advisor had 2.7 times the wealth of their no advice peers. But again, what has driven this is decisional coaching, behavioral coaching, and honestly keeping that client from making three or four bad decisions over an investment lifetime. Like if your advisor kept you invested in 2009, she paid for herself forever. Right. Like, right? I mean, it's just two or three decisions over a lifetime that are make or break. If your advisor can help you do those things, she's paid for herself. Yeah. Basically, if that advisor is still around and they did the same thing early 2020, they basically made their mark once again. Yes, absolutely. We talk about not only the financial aspects of retirement and being prepared financially, being prepared not from a financial standpoint, because I've heard a lot, 
and you have as well, I'm sure, that people are working longer. And the implication is that people are working longer because they need an income stream in order to continue to live the lifestyle they want. But at the same time, what we're seeing a lot is people are working longer, not necessarily from the financial aspect, but the non-financial aspect. What we see, for example, is people retire and then after three months, they don't know how to replace that 40 hours a week that they were working and now they're bored sitting at home. So they go get a part-time job or even go back to full-time work. Are there actions that investors can take early on to start preparing themselves for retirement? Not the financial aspect of it, but the non-financial aspects of retirement and preparing to have that opening of time, so to speak. I think this sort of traditional binary approach to retirement is sort of like, I'm going to slave away for whatever, 40 years, and then I'm going to golf for 40 years. I think that's going away. And when you look at the drivers of happiness, right? when you look at the drivers of happiness and fulfillment, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, who's done some great work on this. And he has this PERMA model. So it's an acronym, P-E-R-M-A. The P is for positive experiences. This is just like fun, like lighthearted fun. The E is for engagement. That's hard work. The R is for relationships. Where do you get most of your relationships? Work, Work. right? The M is for meaning, right? It's working for a team or working for something that's bigger than you, whether it's being a part of a project, being religious, being philanthropic, whatever it is. And the A is advancement. So you could make a case for all five of those things occurring at work. You could make a very strong case for engagement, relationships, and advancement being primarily met by work. And so I think that people, for entirely psychological reasons, may want to work longer, even if they're affluent. They may want to work longer, and they may want to find non-traditional ways to work, right? Like, I mean, I hope I'm not working a nine to five when I'm 70 years old, but I'd love to still be writing books. And so I think we have to reconceptualize this and really understand that hard work is part of what makes us happy and lying on a beach gets old fast. Yeah, no, I agree. You bring up a great point. It's very difficult when you're working 40, 50, whatever number hours a week for X number of years to even develop the relationships that you need to and the hobbies and all the infrastructure, so to speak, that you need and want to cease working and then replace that 40 hours a week with meaningful stuff to do, whether it's relationship-driven or hobby-driven. So I agree with you. My definition of retirement, which I've shared with clients implicitly all the time, is the day that I wake up in the morning and know that I don't necessarily have to go to work, that I can take the day off and it's not going to impact my family and my financial situation. That to me is my definition of retirement. I'll probably still go into the office that day because I love what I do, but it's a different version. And that might change over time, but I think you're right. I think we're going to have to see some kind of mindset change in this whole perception of what retirement is all about. Yeah, absolutely. For me, Wealth is about being able to say no to stuff I hate and yes to things that I love. And so I just want, as I accumulate assets over time, to say no to more and more low quality stuff and yes, more and more to family time and 
long walks and reading and other dorky things that I love. (laughs) That brings us to a great point. And the question that we ask every guest to wrap up the show, and that is, what's the one thing that you do each day, because this is the Midland Money Mindset, that brings you joy and puts you in the right mindset for success? I'm going to give a very COVID-specific answer because this is the thing that has kept me sane for the last six months, and it has been walking and sort of a meditative form of walking. I live outside of Atlanta, and it's a very beautiful spot, and there's a lot of nature and deer and all kinds of animals around. But sort of walking and taking account of my surroundings and just really being reflective and That has been what has kept me sane through this whole thing. With my gym shut down, (laughs) people don't understand, I think, how connected the mind and body are. So if you're getting appropriate exercise, if you're getting appropriate nutrition, appropriate sunlight, so much of the mind part comes into focus then. So walking in nature has been my saving grace through the last six months. That is awesome. And exercise has been my saving grace and the thing that I enjoy every day and puts me in the right mindset for sure. So with that being said, Dr. Crosby, it's great to have you on. How do people find you, find your books and learn more about what behavioral finance is all about? Yeah, I'd love for you to check out my books. The two best are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. I'm on Twitter at Daniel Crosby and on LinkedIn at Daniel Crosby, PhD. Great. And listen, I follow you. I enjoy all of your content and I'm sure our listeners will as well. I thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. I want to thank Dr. Crosby for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. The intersection of money, finance, and behavior is fascinating. And Dr. Crosby is one of the best in the field. I'm sure you were able to locate a few nuggets during our time together, just like I did. You can find his books, The Behavioral Investor and The Laws of Wealth on Amazon.com and be sure to follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn at Daniel Crosby. He posts relevant content that I know you'll find very interesting. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at MidlandFinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please, don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.